Hello and welcome to Ghost Stories for the End of the World. Um, hot on the heels of our journey into the London Underworld by way of the, the Long Good Friday comes another damn film episode, people. Two in a month, if you can believe that. I think that covering Kill List last year, it seemed to shake something loose with listeners. Maybe because it wasn't the car crash it could have been. So yeah, I've been inundated with requests to discuss all kinds of movies over the last year. And believe it or not, Forrest Gump is easily the most requested film. So for the next hour, hour and a half, we'll be breaking down the story of this, you know, the simple country boy who inadvertently played a role in almost every major moment in the the boomer imaginary, I guess. And we'll also be uh, tackling the two most urgent questions of our time. Is Tom Hanks a CIA asset? And contrary to the usual line, is his work in Road to Perdition low-key the best stuff he's ever done? I can't wait to find out. And helping or hindering me this evening is that we've we've made some changes to how we are going to be building the episodes um, going forward, the workflow, basically. As a long-time listener and friend of the show, Rob, uh, he's offered to help produce episodes going forward. So that will free me up, the hope anyways, that it will free me up to focus more on uh, the writing and the recording. And he can handle the editing and production and distribution of the show itself. Obviously, I'll be giving him notes and stuff. Um, he will be hearing this then because this is going to be the first episode he tackles. So no pressure here, Rob. But if you screw this up, I am going after your family, okay? There is a certain level of production quality we expect on this show. And if you fail to hit that, I'm going after your family. Um, so yeah, uh, it's win-win. So we've got the admin and the housekeeping out of the way. Forrest Gump. Now, we're going to be talking about the book as well as the film. But I'll get this out of the way right now. As far as the film goes, I quite like it. Um, it's far from a masterpiece. And as we're going to see, the politics fucking suck. But it's so good to watch when you're hungover. You know, it's like a Sunday morning or maybe early Sunday afternoon. You wake up and you just you are just pain everywhere. There's nothing quite like just nursing a nice cup of tea with some Forrest Gump on. I assume you're at least broadly familiar with the film, if not the book. But just in case, for anyone who isn't, so it's the life story of a well-meaning boomer with an IQ of 75 who inadvertently shapes the course of modern American and, you know, by implication, global history. Uh, this isn't a film, by the way, that deals in subtleties, by and large. Um, the opening scene tracks a white feather uh, floating gently on the breeze before it comes to rest at Forest's feet. Uh, he's sitting on a bench near a bus stop. And wouldn't you know it, Forrest is also wearing a white suit. So it's right in your face, you know, right there. Forrest is the feather and Forrest is America and the breeze is history. I mean, this is how America and the American, you know, likes to see uh, itself, themselves. Uh, you know, bobbing gently on the current of history, simply moved hither and yon, 
trying to get by, man, while bearing no ill intent towards anybody, making no waves, you know, always a victim of circumstance, I suppose. And in fact, Forrest's first lines of dialogue are there to hammer home this notion of um, heartland innocence, you know, folksy down-home naivete and charm. Hello. My name's Forrest, Forrest Gump. Do you want a chocolate? I could eat about a million and a half of these. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And that has deeper resonance for us when we start to think about what the movie and the book had to say about post-war America. And to understand the film's politics, it helps to understand the man who actually created Forrest Gump in the first place, the guy who wrote the book. And this would be Winston Groom. Here he is talking to C-SPAN. Well, I grew up in Mobile, Alabama. I was actually born in Washington, D.C. Uh, during the Second World War, my father was a lawyer with the JAG uh, at the Pentagon, Judge Advocate General's office. Um, but I grew up here and I, and I went to the military school here and I went to the University of Alabama. And then I went into the Army in 1965 uh, as an officer. Uh, that was at the height of the Vietnam War, and of course we all went over there and did that, and came back and went to work as a reporter for the Washington Star for 10 years, and then I thought, well, uh, if I don't get out of here and do this now, I'll never do it, so I announced that I was going to resign to write a book. Groom was not like some infantry grunt in the Army. Uh, here he is writing about his training in the Smithsonian Magazine, 2013. Quote, I was a 23-year-old second lieutenant fresh from advanced training at the Army Psychological Warfare School at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. For three months, they had taught us every dirty trick in the books, and some not so dirty, and others not even in the books. My age and lowly rank notwithstanding, my impression was that I was headed for some exalted position worthy of a John Le Carre novel. And so, yeah, in Vietnam, he was assigned to the 245th Psychological Operations Company. And then after a period of, you know, waiting around for a mission, basically doing very little, he took up tennis and that's kind of indirectly reflected in Forrest Gump because Forrest becomes a bit of a ping pong savant. Uh, yeah, after this rather dull uh, introduction to life in Vietnam, he was then sent to support the PSYOP field team that was attached to the 1st Brigade of the 4th Infantry Division. And in his telling, you know, most of his work entailed leafleting, using loudspeakers to broadcast messages intended to destroy Viet Cong morale, and occasionally, you know, more inventive tactics. So this is Groom again, quote, we also had at our disposal an AC-47 Gabby aircraft, a twin-engine Douglas DC-3 in civilian life. We used it to circle above the enemy's suspected hiding places and play scary funeral music over the loudspeakers to cause them to run away in terror, or at least to keep their troops awake at night. 
If the weather conditions were just right, some of these airplanes were equipped with a kind of movie projector that would shine big dragons or other frightful things onto low-hanging clouds. A downside of these tactics was that they could cause any friendly South Vietnamese troops in the neighborhood to run away also. And then after he rotated back to the States, he worked a spell as a reporter for the Washington Star. And then like he says, he caught the, the writing bug uh, pretty bad and he decided to become a novelist. And the way he did this is he quit his job as a journalist so that he had no fallback option. You know, he had no choice but to succeed as an author. And his first three books were Better Times Than These, As Summers Die, and Conversations with the Enemy. And the first and third books deal with the American experience in the Vietnam War. And As Summers Die, that's set in the 1950s in Louisiana, and it deals with racial injustice in the Deep South. I believe that was adapted into a TV movie starring Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, so Forrest Gump, written in the mid-80s, and initially it only sold around 30,000 copies, something like that. The book diverges pretty starkly from the film as well, it must be said. Uh, in the book, Forrest is like six foot nine and he's like 300 pounds, just a giant of a man, you know, kind of a very Steinbeckian figure. Uh, he eventually becomes an astronaut. Uh, and then on re-entering Earth's atmosphere, he crash lands on an island of cannibals in the Pacific Ocean. Then he has to escape back to America. Jenny doesn't die either in the book. Um, Forrest, I think he works as a pro wrestler for a bit. Then he almost becomes a Hollywood movie star alongside Raquel Welch. And then eventually he makes enough money off his shrimping operation to settle uh, quietly in New Orleans with Lieutenant Dan. And... Um, He's got a different love interest in the book uh, as well. should point that out. So the book is, yeah, it's written from Forrest's point of view. And I guess you could say it's in the American tradition of the tall tale, you know. And Forrest kind of moves through the world innocent and wide-eyed, you know. He has amazing adventures that he doesn't grasp the full historical significance of. And that's kind of the joke of the book. Uh, so just like in the book... He does the same thing in the film, but on a much, kind of a much bigger level, really. So in the film, here he is blowing the Watergate scandal wide open. And I met the president of the United States again. Only this time they didn't get us rooms in a real fancy hotel. So are you enjoying yourself in our nation's capital, young man? Yes, sir. Well, where are you staying? It's called the Hotel Ebot. Oh, no, 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 no. I know of a much nicer hotel. It's brand new, very modern. I'll have my people take care of it for you. Security, Frank Wells. Yeah, sir, you might want to send a maintenance man over to that office across the way. The lights are off and they must be looking for a fuse box or something because them flashlights, they're keeping me awake. Thank you. Good night. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. Now, the most remarkable aspect of the book for me, you know, to say that it was written by a trained PSYOP specialist in Reagan's America, it isn't nearly as dark or reactionary as the fucking film, which was directed by Richie from Happy Days, right? Now, remember, in the book, Jenny lives and actually raises Forrest Jr. by herself, and Forrest takes the decision not to get involved in their lives, you know, not to disturb the uh, 
domestic tranquility that they've got going on. In the film, Jenny dies of AIDS, contracted from a, you know, a lifetime of promiscuity and drug addiction. Uh, the, you know, it's heavily implied is a direct result of her joining the counterculture and becoming politically aware. Uh, Eric Roth adapted the novel for the screen. And his CV is kind of it's kind of all over the place, as well as writing Munich, which is about, you know, the Mossad operations after the Munich massacre. He also wrote Ali, uh, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, which is like a 9-11 movie that also stars Tom Hanks and Killers of the Flower Moon. And his work obviously evinces a fascination with American history and politics and its effect upon the individual. And he does seem to kind of ricochet wildly all over the, the political spectrum. To unlock the rest of this episode, please head over to patreon.com forward slash ghost stories for the end.